Sometimes I think um, the most mysterious words we use when we teach are the words, the practice. Talk about the practice. How long have you been doing the practice? How long do you do the practice every day? How do you continue the practice in everyday life? We really ought to talk a little bit about what is the practice. And even if we talk about the practice of mindfulness, I have to talk a little bit more about what's mindfulness and why should we do it. Certainly not just what you do on the Zafu, or just what you do when you're here. Wouldn't be so much value to it then, because really we're here a very little amount of time, and then the rest of the time is in our life. So this is really a practice that one does in one's life, this practice of mindfulness. So if you think about mindfulness, not as a practice of sitting on the Zafu or being with the breath or doing slow walking. Those are techniques to develop mindfulness, but they're not mindfulness. But mindfulness is really presence and steadiness and alertness, attentiveness. So those are really pretty ordinary things. They're not things that are unusual to daily life. Sometimes I meet people at a retreat and I haven't seen them for a year or whatever since the last time I saw them at a retreat. And they say in an interview, I'm very embarrassed to tell you I haven't practiced at all since last year. And that's very strange to hear because I can't imagine that anybody spent a whole year without being present at all or (laughs) without trying to be attentive at all or somehow cultivating some sort of steadiness in their life. What they actually mean is I didn't sit on my zafu, but that really is just one position to be practicing attentiveness and steadiness. So if we start just by remembering and recalling that that's what mindfulness is. It's presence that's accompanied by steadiness and attentiveness. It's not only knowing what's going on, really grokking it, not only knowing about it, but feeling it, being it, not being separated from it. Knowing what's going on and allowing it, being there for it, being spacious around it, not struggling with it. That doesn't mean that it couldn't be a very, very strong emotion or a powerful emotion. We can be there for all kinds of powerful emotions there's enough steadiness or enough presence. I was remembering today, James and I have done a lot of different things together over our practice career. One of the experiences that we shared is the tidal wave experience seven years ago in uh, Hawaii. We were both uh, sitting in a retreat in Hawaii and uh, All of a sudden, there was a sitting period one afternoon where I sat down and seemed like no time at all, a bell rang. And I thought to myself, gosh, must have such incredible samadhi that whole 45 minutes went by in just a few minutes. Turned out it was just a few minutes. And that they were ringing the bell because they had just gotten word from the 
um, civil defense that there'd been an earthquake um, somewhere out near Japan and that uh, an enormous tsunami, a tidal wave, was on its way to the coast of the, uh, to Hawaii. And the, the coast of the big island where we were was right in its path. And um, so we were summoned out and they said, just go, don't pack, just get your airplane tickets and your wallet and we'll um, evacuate this place. They're sending a bus to evacuate us all. And then about five minutes later, they said new information, the civil defense has just called. They don't have any buses. They're using them to evacuate Kona. So we have to stay here. And there's, <laughs> and there's no way to get out of here. We were on the coast. Right behind us was a very thick jungle. We looked around. We said, how about the jungle? They said, no, that's not a good idea. Don't go in the jungle. They said, just go upstairs. We had two two-story huts, so it wasn't very up. They said, just go upstairs and uh, make provisions. So make, make provisions meant that they filled the bathtubs with water, thinking that the water supply would be disrupted. And they took matches and crackers and fresh fruit upstairs. And we took a lot of mattresses upstairs, I guess, to sit on or lie on or whatever. And uh, so here we were, 40 or 50 people in a room about this size. And uh, we got all, all the preparations made. All actually without a lot of talking. We were all in silence. There wasn't a lot to say. I mean, just did it. And uh, incredibly, nobody panicked. Everybody just did it. Just all did it. And then we got all finished with all the preparations. And so we sat. And uh, the person leading the retreat said, well, we did everything. We might as well sit. So we sat. And if, if I were the person leading the retreat, and you were all of us, to imagine that behind me was a great glass wall of window <laughs> facing out to the ocean and to the horizon. So I think many of us sat with our eyes open, <laughs> watching the horizon or opening them certainly with a great frequency. And they said the tsunami is expected at 5 o'clock. And it was then just not long before 5. And uh, James and I were sitting next to each other, although I remember clearly that I was on the other side of him. And uh, we held hands for a while, but then we sat. And I remember thinking, this is like what it's like to be mindfully frightened. I was really frightened. You know, I really was ghastly to think about drowning in that building. I didn't want to think about that. Uh, so I was frightened. But, and I imagine everybody was frightened. But we all sat there. Everybody was not hysterical. Everybody sat with whatever degree of steadiness they could. And they were aware of fear in the body. The heart pounds palms are sweaty, the body vibrates, it does whatever it does, mindfully aware of fear. So it never came, the tsunami. And here we are to tell about it. But I tell that story mostly to, to say that mindfulness can exist even in 
dramatic and difficult situations, can be mindful about being filled with grief, filled with fear, filled with sadness. Sometimes I think that one of the things that uh, prevents us from living fully in our life is our fear that we'll be overwhelmed with whatever it is, that the machinery just won't be able to support it, that we won't be able to stand it. Frequently, I think we are circumscribed in our ability to live fully in our lives because we are afraid that if we open to it, whatever it is, it will just overwhelm us, that somehow we haven't the confidence that everything is supportable. The machine is made to support it. There are some very, very heavy things to support, but essentially we can support it. Fundamentally, we can support it because whatever it is, it won't last. And that's essentially what the Buddha taught. Other ways to make bigger ramifications of that, and some of which I'll try to do tonight, but essentially that's what he taught. In fact, they were the presumably next to the last sentence that he spoke before he died, his reminder to his followers, said, transient are all conditioned things. Everything that arises passes away. Nothing lasts. It's all impermanent. Transient are all conditioned things. Then the last thing he said was, strive on with diligence. I love that. (laughs) I think he meant practice. Do the practice. And we need to do the practice because most of us forget that everything is supportable because everything is impermanent and we struggle so much with it. We fight with it. That's actually what the Buddha taught. It's going to be a mini course in what the Buddha taught. 2,500 years before Scott Peck said life is difficult. 2,500 years before Kierkegaard and Camus and Sartre all had existential angst. The Buddha had existential angst. He said, life is really painful. No matter how good you get it, and he had it very good, was born into a wonderful family. According to the story of his life, everything was arranged so that he had it made. He had everything that you need for creature comforts. He had a wife. He had a child. He had all the wonderful things in life. And suddenly, through a series of mysterious events, he got it, that it's all very fragile, that nothing really is dependable in life, that no matter how good you get it, because things change, they won't last. This is true in our lives, any of us, if you remember back in your life, there was ever a time where you got it absolutely perfect. It didn't last. You know, sometimes there are those tremendous soap opera lines where people say, I'm so happy with you, we're going to be happy now the rest of our lives. And then there's a commercial break, and then you come back, and then immediately some catastrophic event happens in, that, in their life. And people laugh at the soap operas like they're silly. But actually, I mean, that's what our lives are made out of, aren't they? 
we get it together a little bit and then something happens. Or we don't get it together at all, but even if we do, <laughs> we want something and we can't get it. Or we want something and we get it and we find that isn't what we want. Or we want something and we get it and it is what we want, but it doesn't last. I mean, one way or another, because things change, that doesn't mean life is dreadful. Somebody once asked me, so this sounds very grim. Do Buddhists have birthday parties? Do they, <laughs> you know, they, do they play? I think they do. I think they do because they know we have no time to lose. We have to, any time there's a possibility of playing, we had better do it because it isn't going to last. That's serious, really. I think that what one actually comes to is really the dual notion that life is not only supportable and manageable, but actually embraceable and it's possible to celebrate it, to seize every moment that we can to do that. So all that time ago, the Buddha discovered that that's really the situation in life, that everything changes and everything is very fragile. You know, when Kierkegaard talked about fear and trembling because of the fragility of it all, he said, you never know, really. We count on things to be a certain way. He said, it's ridiculous to say to a person, I'll see you next week. You should say to a person, I'll see you next week if, as I leave your house, a tile from your roof does not fall on my head. And I'm not run over by a carriage in the street as I'm crossing, and I don't get some dread disease between now and next week. But actually, you laugh, and actually, it's true. I mean, when we say to each other, I'll, you know, I'll see you again, it's a calculated guess. I mean, actuarially, it's probably true, but really, it's all quite fragile. When I actually began to discover that myself in my life, I think it's really what propelled me into my own spiritual path or search. I think it probably was beginning to happen over some years, but many people come to practice because they are having some real struggle in their life or tragedy has just befallen them or things are really difficult and they're hoping for some solace from the pain that they have. Actually, I came to practice at a time that my life was really quite agreeable. I was an adult, I, I was married, I loved my husband, I had my children and they were wonderful. I had a lot of good fortune in this life. I had a career that I liked a lot and was gratifying to me. I think it must have been more than one thing that happened to me to frighten me, but the paradigm thing that frightened me is, uh, I think, was that one morning when my daughter was in the second grade, one of my daughters was in the second grade, um, two other little girls in the first grade and second grade, two sisters, were killed on the way to school one morning. car went out of control on the street and rode up on the sidewalk. And they were sisters. And they died. And I didn't know them. I just knew that one of them was in Liz's class. Somehow that particular event struck me as if the lights went on somehow, as if where had I been for 30 years, that I had not previously gotten it 
about the fragility of life. I mean, every day you know that people die. I knew that people die. You read the newspapers, people die. It's on the radio and the television and all around you. And somehow you know it, but it doesn't happen to you, and it doesn't get you in some meaningful way. And on that particular occasion, I really got it. It's all very fragile. I thought to myself, I wonder what I could, I thought I could feel what that mother might be feeling. I don't know if I could actually allow myself even to feel what I imagined she might be feeling. But I thought about what she had said to them before she, they left for school. I really hoped she had said something wonderful rather than remember to bring home your lunchbox or you know, don't leave the spelling homework again. Or you know. I hope she had said I love you or something terrific on, when they left. Didn't matter what she had said, they would have gone just the same. But I thought about it a lot. And it just really rocked the foundations out from under me. Really became quite panicky. Every time I left somebody and I said, I'll see you later, or they said, I'll see you later, I thought to myself, I wonder if I will. I really began to see life in an extraordinarily new way. It all seemed so fragile. And even though at that time my personal life was holding itself together, I knew that at some time in this life, it wouldn't. Sooner or later, each of us is going to have to deal with grief and loss because of change, because that's the way life is. And I thought I had better equip myself. I didn't actually even know how to equip myself. I didn't actually know that spiritual practice or this practice was the way to equip oneself. If I'd known about it, I probably would have gotten into it even earlier than I did. I actually spent some years being panicky and worried and tense and on top of my already nervous and catastrophic mind state that I'm pretty sure I was born with. I spent really a few quite shaky years in my own fear and trembling. Then when I came to do this practice, the first time I did it, first time I went to a retreat, even though I hadn't got a clue, I didn't have a clue before, either during or even after, I think, about what I was supposed to do in terms of working with the mind and what technically practiced meant or how to do it. I don't think I had a clue. But I listened to people talk, and I listened to the Dharma talks. And I thought to myself that I had never heard so many people talk so much about suffering who seemed so happy. I'd never seen people say the truth so straightforwardly who seemed all right with it. And somewhere or another, I thought to myself, something that these people are doing is equipping them to be able to say what the truth is. And if I hang around with them, I might find out too. So that's essentially what the Buddha taught. The Buddha taught that life is painful just by its own self, just because we're born in a body. And unless we constantly take care of it, it it's, it'll make us uncomfortable. And when you think about it, you have to tend to it all the time. You have to feed it and wash it lie it down and stand it up and take care of it and 
move it about. I mean, it's a it's a fantastic machine, but it takes a lot of maintenance. And so it doesn't stay good. I mean, you can't get it good and keep it good. You have to keep on doing input. And the same with our relationships. We have to put them together and keep them good. We have to keep working at it. And besides, no matter how much you maintain it, eventually it starts to break down, sooner or later. Later, if you're lucky, and sooner if something else intervenes. And the same is true of everybody we know and love. It's a line that the Buddha taught that sometimes I don't teach so soon because I don't want to add to people's idea that Buddhism has a kind of a, might sound like a kind of a um, mm, pessimistic worldview. And the Buddha said, everything that is dear to us causes pain. It's true, isn't it? Even while they're here and dear, eventually, they'll lose us or we'll lose them. Dearness causes pain. I mean, it's okay. We all here have chosen relational lives. We haven't decided that it's not worth it. But we're going to have to learn to deal with that pain in some way and be all right with it. And the Buddha further taught that there's a way to be all right with it. That pain is pain. It's just what comes with the... That's what it is. A friend of mine is fond of saying to people, you know, that's just how it is on this planet. If you wanted it otherwise, you came to the wrong planet. On this planet, that's what we have. We have bodies, and we have pain. We have joy as well, plenty of it. But it's not so much the fact that we have joys that are evanescent and pain that's difficult. It's that we complicate it. We struggle with them. Because we pretend that it could be otherwise. We wrestle with them, struggle with them. Years and years and years, 2,500 years before someone figured out the serenity prayer, the Buddha figured it out. We, change, we have the courage, we try to have the courage to change what we can and to accept what we can't change and to know the difference. That's essential Buddhism. That's really what he taught. That somehow life is painful that we compound the pain and make it suffering, really, for ourselves. It's the difference in Buddhism between pain and suffering. Pain is pain. It's just part of the natural condition. Suffering is what we add to it by our relationship to it. And we can diminish the suffering that we have by working with the ways that we relate to the experiences in our life. We can have a wiser way to relate to the experiences of our life. He taught, he said, suffering and the end of suffering. One of his um, monks once came and said, and I'm very unhappy. I always love these stories of people who come to the Buddha and say, you're not a very good teacher. Imagine. You're not a very good teacher. I'm very unhappy because I came here to learn about where I was before I was born and where I'll be after I die and where were you before you were born and where would you be after you die. Kind of metaphysics that are part of every cosmology and every religion. So, and I've been here all this time and I've been a monk and you haven't taught me that yet. 
And the Buddha said, apparently, according to the story, he said, that's true. He said, because really, I mean, and in fact, he did teach a whole cosmology. But he said, what I teach is suffering and the end of suffering. That's really what's essential. And really what I've just told you are the first three of the Four Noble Truths. When the Buddha had his own experience of waking up and realization and clarity, the first sermon that he preached was a sermon to five monks who had been his former um, colleagues in spiritual practice. And uh, in that particular sermon, he met them and he said, listen, I figured it out. This is the way to freedom in this life and in this body. Don't have to be in an altered state. Don't have to be in deep meditative states. You don't have to be apart from the world. You can be in the world with clear understanding. And he taught his teaching on the Four Noble Truths, which is that life is painful and that we make it into suffering by struggling with it, by not letting it be when we can't change it, even if we'd like to change it. He called that craving. Just not being able to say, this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I've got when that's the only thing that we can say. Sometimes you can say, this isn't what I wanted, and we can change it. But if it isn't what I wanted, and I can't change it, what will I do then? So life is difficult. We make it into suffering by struggling with it. That's the second noble truth. The third is that it's possible to come to the end of suffering. I even, for myself, say to myself, it's possible to mitigate suffering. Not even going to worry about coming to the end of it. Mitigating. Be all right, too. And the fourth of the Four Noble Truths is the path, the techniques to do it. Some people apparently don't need a path. Some people are inherently wise. The two people that I always think of that are that I that come to mind about inherently wise are fictional and non-fictional. One of them is um, well, actually three, I suppose. The fictional one is Zorba. The fictional one is Zorba. The fictional one of Zorba, who says, "This is the whole catastrophe. If you're going to live." You're going to have to take the whole catastrophe. Do you remember when the young man that he's with says to him, Zorba, were you ever married? He said, yeah, I had a wife, I had a house, I had children. I had the whole catastrophe. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, John Kabat-Zinn has written a very good book on the use of mindfulness meditation, especially as uh, as a tool for working with intractable pain, either body pain or mind pain. And he's called it full catastrophe living, just using that term from Zorba. And the full catastrophe. And Zorba's um, teaching for his young protege is you feel your life fully 
When you love it, you love it, you embrace it. And when it's painful, you dance, because what else will you do? You just open to it. The two other people that come to mind are, one of them I know is real because it was my grandfather. The other one was Kazimzakis' grandfather. Those of you who have read Report to Greco, which is Kazimzakis' autobiography, tells a story about the death of his grandfather. It's a wonderful, moving story where he's a little boy in, in Greece and his grandfather is dying and tells a story of uh, the getting the word in his village that the grandfather up in the town on the mountain is dying and people make the journey up to the grandfather. And he describes the grandfather in his courtyard um, of outside of his farm surrounded by his family, giving instructions calmly for his impending demise, giving instructions for that show um, a depth of understanding about how, is, how it is with us in our place in the cosmos and what we ought to be doing here. Really kind of what you might call a native wisdom or a naive wisdom. So listen, my time is coming. I'd like you to do is I'd like you to maintain this farm. Take care of the animals with the same care that I always tried to, the sheep. So they're just like people, only they're in a different clothing. Make sure that you uh, don't skimp on the preparations for my funeral feast. Um, just really make a lavish enough feast so that you're really doing the right thing for everybody who comes. Take care of yourself. Do all the right things. Now my time is coming. Turn me towards the setting sun. I feel that I'm leaving. Goodbye, everybody. Poof, and he's out. And it's such a sweet story of not struggling. I had, um, I guess I'm most touched by that story because I think actually that if I'm quite honest about the beginning of my spiritual quest, I didn't know it at the time. Just actually came to my mind this very moment, so you know it as soon as I do. Uh, when I was 15 years old, I had, a, I, I had a boyfriend of a kind of a more moody and melancholy cast than many 15-year-old. Maybe many 15-year-old boys are moody and melancholy, but it was moody and melancholy and interesting because he was moody and melancholy and he wrote poetry and I was fascinated by it. I didn't actually get his moodiness or his melancholiness or much of his poetry, but it was very fascinating. <laughs> but the poem that fascinated him the most was Dylan Thomas's poem to his father about do not go gently into that dark night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And I remember him reading that to me. Lots of times, actually. And I knew it was wrong. I didn't like it. I knew it was wrong. had a kind of a melancholy fascination. So maybe sometime when I really think about my spiritual autobiography, I'll have to start it with him. Because I knew that there was another way to do it, and that I didn't want to do it that way, raging. 
The other person who's a real-life person, well, not anymore, but he was. He was my grandfather, and he lived to be 98. And I think he was inherently wise, uh, uneducated, illiterate, um, uh, outlived at 98, three wives, and two of his three children. And... uh, lived very, um, lived in a way, I think, that uh, when he died, I don't think there was anybody in the world who had a bad thing to say about him. Lived simply, worked hard, he was a laborer, was kind, he was thoughtful, he took care of people. He felt his feelings very passionately. When my mother died, he was so upset that my main concern at the time, and I was bereft that my mother had died, was how he was going to make it through the funeral. He was just really so distraught. And then a little bit later, not so long later, he kind of physically and verbally and altogetherly pulled himself together and said, well, said this phrase, but he said it like one word. He said, what are you going to do? That's life. Like a one-word encapsulation of dharma. What are you going to do? That's life. That's like Zorba or the Buddha. That's the way it is. Things come and go. You can't make it the way you want it. Sometimes you get it absolutely the way you don't want it. And there's nothing you can do about it. You can't take it back or do it again. The only thing you can do is relate to it in some sort of a wise way. That's the way life is. So I think he had a wise way of seeing how life was. He picked himself up and he continued his life and did another, maybe 20 years after that. So some people are innately wise. Most of the rest of us have to practice. So now we talk about the practice, which is the fourth of the Four Noble Truths. And actually, mindfulness is just the eighth of the eight pieces of that path. There's a way in which you can say every piece of it is every other piece of it. There's a game I like to play sometime where... uh, and say, I'm going to take all the eight pieces of the path and put them in a paper sack and pull out one of them and show that, in fact, if I pull it out more, whichever one it is, is connected to all the rest of it. Because if I pull out effort, right effort, well, I couldn't have right effort without right aspiration, which would condition that effort couldn't have right aspiration, the desire to practice, without some right understanding. If I had some right understanding, I would definitely be concentrating. And if I had some concentration, I'd probably have some mindfulness. So that whatever one you pull out, they're all kind of connected to each other. So it's all kind of an heuristic exercise to divide them up into eight pieces, but we'll divide them up into eight pieces. What's more, the eight pieces of the path are not only divided into eight pieces, but into three categories. It's neat that way. 
And one category has two pieces, and one has three, and one has three. And sometimes the piece with the two, when you read a list of the eight, the two pieces in the beginning, and sometimes it's at the end. So I like to put it in the beginning and in the end, so it kind of becomes like a circle, because it can be in either place, and they're all connected. So the first path part is, they're all right, right something. Right understanding, right aspiration, right action, right speech, right livelihood, right effort, right concentration, right mindfulness. Right understanding is getting it, what the Buddha taught. That what are you going to do? That's life. That's right understanding. And we don't just get it and then have it forever. We get it a little, and then we get it some more and some more and some more and some more and some more. That's why this is a life practice. It's not a one-shot deal. And you don't, I don't know anybody who's got it and is all finished. Maybe the Buddha was all finished, but most of us, this is a life practice. Not only that what are you going to do that's life, that's one piece of it. Life just happens and how we relate to it. But that also that it just happens. That's another piece of right understanding. That it's all conditioned by innumerable things, most of which totally out of our control. A little bit we have free will, and a little bit we have control, so that we can brush our teeth and take our vitamins. But we cannot control who rides up on what sidewalk, or where the earth opens, or where there are tidal waves, or what genes go into which child, or who meets who when, or whether or not we meet the person of our choice, no matter, of our dreams, no matter how much we want to. Much of it is out of our control, conditioned by all kinds of factors, who knows what. Everything is conditioned, that's another thing. It's the fundamental teaching of the Buddha. Everything happens according to conditions. Nothing happens without conditions. Everything that happens affects everything else that happens. That's an essential piece of the teaching. Most of it, quite apart from anything that we might think that we are doing. That's an important piece of understanding. Not to render us helpless, but actually to render us relaxed and spacious. We're not in charge. Can make skillful choices all the time. But we're not in charge. We can make the most skillful choices with whatever is arising. Actually, that's one of the very good reasons, actually straight away, for talking about cultivating mindfulness. I mean, the the ability to be present with some sort of steadiness of mind and some sort of clarity of vision, regardless of what it has to do in terms of giving us long-term cosmic understanding of the way life is, is it gives us short-term ability to make good choices in life so that we don't compound our difficulties in life. Sometimes I think that uh, in our hurry and in our unclarity of seeing, we make misjudgments that make our difficulties compounded. You know, sometimes I have the image that sometimes we step into taffy 
And we're so in a hurry to step out of it that we fall over, and then we've got our hands in the taffy as well. And then we're trying to push ourselves out of the taffy and step out of it. And in the, in the, in the process, we get ourselves all tangled up and gummed up in the taffy, where if we would have thought in the beginning, wait a minute, I've stepped into taffy, what would be a good way to get out of here? We could probably maneuver difficult situations more skillfully. So that the, even in the short range, leaving aside um, fundamental insight about the truth of life, in the short range, we make skillful choices and we live perhaps more gratifying and happier life. But some sort of right understanding that that possibility exists, that life is difficult, that we can make it manageable, even embraceable, celebrable, celebratable, that it can be that. That's the beginning of right understanding. And that sort of right understanding, however much, a little, a lot, contributes to right aspiration. Right aspiration means I'm really going to do it. I'm going to fix up my life in such a way that I can be there. I remember uh, at that very first same first retreat that I was sitting at, where here were all these folks. I didn't quite get what all they were talking about that I should do. But I got it that they knew about suffering. And I got it that I was frightened about suffering. (coughs) And I got it that they looked okay with it. And I thought to myself, those are just plain folks. Whatever they're doing, I could do it too. There's nothing mysterious. If they can do it, I can do it. It's just a plain, even when we say those words, they're really ordinary things to be present, to be steady, to be alert. Okay, so tell me the techniques and I'll practice them. It's really quite ordinary. And in fact, because my teachers looked so ordinary to me, I'm really happy that in this tradition we have ordinary looking teachers rather than (laughs) rather than sort of reverential figures, truly. I mean, with all due respect for reverential figures, there's always the possibility of thinking, well, this person who's actually so saintly, they can do it, but I'll never be able to do it. And it was much better for me to see plain folks. These plain folks have some sort of vision and some sort of capacity then I can do it. So that's right aspiration. I'll do it. I'll figure out a way to do my life. And there's all kinds of ways that we could elaborate that. I'll cultivate those things in my life that make less agitation in the mind and give for more and, and, and mitigate in favor of more clear seeing and I won't do the things that cloud up the mind. That's part of right aspiration. It's also part of right effort as well. So then that's the first path part. The second part has to do with the way we live in the world. So right action, right speech, right livelihood. And there are two ways of understanding right action, right speech, right livelihood. They're pretty easy to understand as as as, uh, as uh, path parts, as uh, 
things to do. You think about what is right action. Right action is to behave in a way that doesn't cause pain, doesn't bring harm, creates an aura of harmlessness about oneself. It's very much the precepts that we took the first night, or precepts to create an atmosphere of harmlessness. It's actually a reflection of wisdom. Life is so difficult. If we see that clearly, then our response to that wisdom would be certainly not to make it any more difficult, not to cause any more pain. There's a certain amount of pain that's inevitable. We don't need to add more to it. So that really right action in the sense of not causing harm, not exploiting, not using our sexual energy in a way that causes pain. That's actually what right action is. Takes into consideration the fact that those are the tendencies of the unguarded mind that we might, in a careless moment or an unthoughtful, unmindful moment, actually act on some feeling of aversion and cause pain. We might act on some feeling of greed and be exploitive. We might express our sexuality in a way that's exploitive or aggressive and cause pain or harm. And really deciding not to do that is really a reflection of wisdom. Life is so painful, let me not add to it. Right speech has a whole category of itself in the path which really has been very meaningful to me. I think about it a lot. I talk so much, and my, my work is talking with people all day long. I'm so aware of the ways in which, if we're not um, thoughtful, if we're not uh, uh, attentive to intent, we can really cause a lot of pain with the things that we say. When you read, uh, when you read the path, it often says something just as um, obvious as that means not lying and uh, not slandering and not gossiping. But actually, I think that's just for starters. I mean, I mean that we goes without saying: not lying, not slandering, not gossiping. But we really, those of us who have any, I know it for myself, for a person with a fair degree of uh, verbal nuance ability. There's a great deal of manipulation that you can do with, with, with words that might not reflect kind intent, might in some way be exploitive. So right speech has a whole path part by itself. And when we talk about the interconnectedness of path parts, if I am to take on right speech as a path sadhana, as a path, um, as a spiritual task, which I hope I do, then it requires a great deal of mindfulness because I have to be aware all the time. I talk so much. I need to be aware all the time of what is my intention tomorrow morning when we begin to talk to each other. I, I, I hope that we'll do it as a practice to see before we speak what is the intention that's motivating this exact thing that I'm going to say or this choice of words. Right livelihood is another of those three, of those path parts. In the time of the Buddha, it seemed to have been fairly straightforward. You didn't uh, manufacture weapons or 
intoxicants which clearly cause pain. Now, I, actually, the people that I know who see right livelihood as a major path part for them, obviously it means to have a livelihood that's not exploitive and not a, a, aggressive. I have, um, I know people who are investment counselors whose practice is to know about every um, company in their in their mutual fund portfolios to make sure that all of them are involved in practices or happening in countries or using workforces that would be um, all right for those people for whom those sensitivities for not exploiting people for whom that's important so that for people for whom it's important in their heart not to feel exploitive but in fact for some reason have enough money to have an investment counselor Here's an investment counselor who has a portfolio of things, of, of companies that operate in that way. So here's someone sometimes think that business or commerce or finance is not compatible with spiritual practice. I mean, we live in a world where we, each of us, nobody here is a monastic. We, each of us, need to somehow earn money and to do it skillfully in a way that's... Um, honest and creditable and non-exploitive is a real is a real possibility for as a spiritual path so those those are those three path parts and sometimes people um, talk about them as uh, a kind of a preliminary in the path to the path of insight which is a meditative path the contemplative path the one that we've been doing which are right right effort, right concentration, right mindfulness. And so sometimes there's a possibility of misunderstanding those path parts as being somewhat lesser path parts, those kind of behavior in the world path parts, like they're the warm-up for the real thing, which is the meditation. I used to think that in the beginning of my own practice. I think it was, um, uh, actually it wasn't probably only my misinterpretation. I think in those days we really did think that um, happiness lay in the insights that would come through depth contemplative awareness. I think it's true that it does, and I think that happiness is also a reflection of living in that way. I think actually it works both ways. You know those those, um, uh, equations (coughs) in chemistry where there are arrows and the arrows go both ways. I think that living in that way leads to happiness. And living in that way is a reflection of a happy heart. When we live with that, when we, when we are dwelling in a happy heart, we are not disposed to cause pain to people or to exploit them. When living in a happy heart, it would not occur to us to have an unright livelihood. We wouldn't be moved to use speech in a way that caused pain. So I think that it's not only a path part, it's an entire path. And especially tomorrow when we talk about taking practice into the world and people saying, you know, I don't have a lot of time to sit because I'm so busy in the world. The world could be our whole practice, really. So that's the path part that has to do with uh, behavior in the world. 
It is happiness to live that way. And living that way is part of right effort. It's part of the next path part, which is right effort, which is cultivating the kind of mind that's unagitated, that's able to concentrate, that's able to be mindful. That if we live in a way that's wholesome and skillful, then the mind is less likely to be filled with guilt or remorse or anxiety. And it's more able to begin to concentrate and for mindfulness to arise. So we'll talk a little bit about those last three path parts. We already have quite a bit in conjunction with all those other parts, but once again, they're right effort, right concentration, right mindfulness, right effort. It's often described in the text as the effort to cultivate in the mind those mind states that are wholesome and keep them there and to eliminate from the mind those mind states that are unwholesome and keep them there. That seems pretty straightforward. I, when I first learned the word cultivate, I liked that so much because I was concerned about what if I had to wait until some magical time when I would be totally clear of vision in order to spontaneously live with generosity or spontaneously live with compassion. Because those are actually the spontaneous fruits of clear seeing. That's what it says. If we see clearly, then we respond with generosity and with compassion. Those are the hallmarks of our understanding. But what about until I have any understanding? It was wonderful to find out that I could cultivate generosity and I could cultivate compassion until such time as the Messiah arrived, so to speak. There would be something else to do in the meanwhile. And as a matter of fact, it would be helpful for cultivating insight and cultivate compassion, behave in a way that really relaxes the heart and opens the mind. So really that right effort is to sort of cultivate the kind of mind that really begins to be able to concentrate. One that's unfrazzled, unfilled with, not filled with remorse or guilt, and actually quite open by practicing compassion, by practicing generosity. Right concentration. I like to understand that right concentration in the context of the steadiness that I mentioned before. That there are lots of different understandings of concentration, concentration meditations, and could talk a long time about the different different kinds of concentration and depths of concentration and the various effects that actually quite altered states of profound concentration have on the mind and have on an ongoing basis. But just for the purposes of this mindfulness practice, talk about concentration in terms of cultivating that sort of steadiness that's able to support experience as it arrives with openness, not pushing it away and not hanging on to it. That amount of steadiness. And we've been cultivating it here all week in various ways, just by not doing so many things, just by being quiet, just by having a simple life, 
by moving slowly, by attempting from time to time to rest in the breath, just because the breath is so monotonous, not because it's not because it's holier than anything else, but because it's regular. Walking back and forth is regular. Breathing is regular. That regularity makes a kind of steadiness of heart. That's why it's actually a good idea to return to it from time to time. Really keep establishing that basis of steadiness. That's why tomorrow when we talk about returning to the world and taking this practice into the world, we'll really talk about the world is the practice, and we will talk about, and it's also a good idea, to build some amount of steadiness practice into your worldly practice. So even though it counts that the whole world is the practice, it helps that you sit a little bit every day, or that you walk a little bit every day. That's the part of the practice that's really making the steadiness part, that's able to support the part that moves about in the world we hope opening with alertness and attentiveness and with compassion and with generosity throughout the day. And say that's the practice and the steadiness part is the foundation for the practice. And the last path part is mindfulness. So we've already said it. So that capacity to be with what's happening in a way that knows it, grocks it, opens to it, is patient with it, doesn't fight with it, supports it, and then makes the right response. It's another way of saying it's the difference between, because living in the world, certainly not experience happens to us and we just take it all. Experience happens to us and then we act, we hope wisely. But that kind of wise action, which I think of as a response rather than a reaction, is really what makes the difference. We have a little bit of space in between our experience and how we respond to it. So that's really what mindfulness is here and in the rest of our life. This isn't actually any different from the rest of our life. It looks different, but it's just slower. Actually, it's just the same. We move around and eat and do things here, and we move around in our life as well, somewhat in a more complicated way there and faster. But essentially, all the same, the the same mind is with us here and there, liking and not liking, reacting, struggling, getting tangled up, getting in a snarl, letting go. It's all coming and going, coming and going. Presumably, if we're able to cultivate all these faculties of being, there are two ways to understand the goal of that path. One is that the goal is insight, that if all those ways of behaving are part of the way that we are, that more and more, will come to some insight in a quite uh, direct way that it's true, that this is what's true about life. All those insights, it's painful, we make it worse by struggling with it. We can struggle less, can be less painful. It's all conditioned. 
It's all just happening. We can open to it or we cannot open to it. That's really the only choice we have. We can open to it and respond with wisdom and kindness. We can close off and make our situation more uncomfortable. More and more we can see that. And so that there's one way of seeing the path is if I'm practicing all those path parts, I'll arrive more and more at insights and more and more understanding, more and more right understanding, which comes back to the beginning of the path, and I'll get wiser and wiser and wiser. That's a way to think of the path as linear. I'll do it and I'll get to someplace. Of course, I'll get to it again and again and again, and I'll get wiser and wiser and wiser. That's a way to think of the path as in time and linear. There's another way that I also like to think about it, which is, it's all right here now. It's not going anywhere. To live this path is to be free now. It's not to get to be free as my understanding increases. Every moment of mindfulness is really a moment of freedom. It's a moment of non-struggle. So I don't have to think about how many moments I have of non-struggle now. And I think, oh boy, 10 years from now, when I'm really advanced on this path, then a lot of my time is going to be free of struggle, much more than now. It doesn't matter. It only matters this very moment. This very moment is the only one I've got. This very moment is the only one I've ever got. That's true for everybody. I mean, it's not special for me. And that's, for me, what's so exciting about this practice. There's no sense of one has to wait to practice, to get to some place where we'll be good at it. We are all good at it. This is not an unnatural practice. When you hear Zorba stories or my grandfather's stories, these are not people who learned it or practiced it or developed it. He used to think that the mind had to get sort of arm wrestled to the ground, but it was like an unnatural thing. I was going to learn to get the mind in order. The mind is in order. It's just somehow we've forgotten it. And we frazzle it all up. And that in any moment that we are, by whatever, by effort or by grace or by recall, by a culmination of conditions, who knows, in every moment that we are able to be alert and attentive and steady and present, we're really free. And that's so exciting. So that's the practice. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on October 14, 1993. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.